Sci-fi Saturday night. Sounds like a planet. I was born ready. Watching UFOs race by. Give it a chance. You never know, it might be kind of hot. If you're cool, this will sound normal. When I hear a series called Mary Jane, I think of something completely different. I'm made of Teflon. The great thing about virgins is that they're a renewable resource. <laughs> well said. No, Avatar is much better with the glasses. But if something doesn't immediately strike that chord, then it's tossed away like so much hip hop. It was an okay movie um, for a while. Getting odd noises, and, and we can vote on on our favorite comment. I had hope, and my hopes were dashed every Give time. It. The only way I love this cast is because somebody always says what I'm thinking. Sci-fi Saturday night. Bigger is better. From Area 51's Gilbert and Sullivan Pavilion, I am the Dome. Welcome to Talkcast 88, in which we speak of a great science fiction writer. Tonight we're discussing Isaac Asimov. Joining us tonight from the Four Color Vault Comics in Manchester, New Hampshire, it's the man, the myth, the legend, mm-hmm. Illustrator X. I am the very model of a modern maid general. And the maid of Thuvia herself, it's the dead redhead. Let's see how many robotic robotic rules we can break tonight. <laughs> Joining me in Area 51 tonight, it's Kriana. What's up? And the Zombrarian. Hello. And from somewhere on the West Coast, the gentleman who knows about whom he speaks, a man who knew Isaac Asimov, a man who is profoundly perfect profoundly affected by his work. <laughs> wow! Okay. Getting a little tongue-tied already, are we? Here we go. Okay, first of all, never rent teeth. You have to buy them. You have to get them fitted. My God. Secondly, never go to a Calvinist wedding before a podcast. I'm just saying. Be nice. His new book, Leviathans of Jupiter, is part of his Grand Tour series, world-renowned science fiction author, Returning guest, Dr. Ben Bova. Dr. Bova, welcome to the show. It's good to be back with you guys. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Tonight we're talking about Isaac Asimov, the profound effect that one of the three grandmasters had upon the landscape of science fiction, and what, in fact, was his mark. We're going to start off tonight talking about something that's been floating around the interwebs, a note supposedly written by Dr. Asimov to the future patrons of a new library. Zombrarian found it for us, and she would like to talk to us about it. Go ahead, my dear. Well, first, actually, I think I want to read it aloud to you, because it's beautiful, and I'm going to try to do it without choking up. Why don't you read it silent? No, no. Read it aloud. (laughs) That's 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 sort of the point here. (laughs) I'm going to try to, well, I'm going to try to do it without choking up because it really expresses how I feel about libraries. And it goes, it goes as follows. Dear boys and girls, congratulations on the new library because it isn't just a library. It is a spaceship that will take you to the furthest reaches of the universe, 
a time machine that will take you to the far past and the far future, a teacher that knows more than any human being, a friend that will amuse you and console you, and most of all, a gateway to a better and happier and more useful life. And I think that kind of says it all about libraries. Um, especially today when people are doubting the use of them. It also says a lot about Asimov's feeling about social science and the part that literature plays, the part that uh, books play in the formation of the human life and the human condition and why it's important. And, the imp and their importance not just as education but as something for your soul, something entertaining and uplifting. Well, I have a, my question is, um, all week I've been um, getting emails from listeners about tonight's show, and the thing they keep mentioning is that Asimov is one of the big three. That he is, him, Robert A. Heinlein, and Arthur C. Clarke constitute the big three of science fiction because of their influence. What is it about Asimov that makes him such a profound influence on, on science fiction in general? And for that, we turn to the man who actually knows him, knew him, and worked with him, Dr. Bova. Hello. You were asking Hello. me about why is Isaac Asimov such a major contributor to science fiction? Yes, sir. The answer is very simple. He wrote damn good science fiction. Damn right uh, he did. <laughs> Excellent interview, everyone. <laughs> Isaac was the epitome of the rationalist thinker. Isaac's stories all deal with the importance of thinking rationally, of looking at the world and using science and your mind to solve your problems. Uh, and he wrote very entertainingly. The interesting thing is that science fiction was a very small part of Isaac's total output of books. He wrote nearly 500 of them and most of them were nonfiction. he could write about any subject under the sun and write about it so simply and accurately that you could understand the basics of that field after reading one of his books. Asimov's, Guide to, Shakespeare. Asimov's Guide to Shakespeare was an amazing book. Yes. You know, so that kind of... Guide to... Go, Go ahead, ahead. I stopped... No, no, you, please, you're the guest. <laughs> <laughs> As I said, Isaac could take just about any subject and write about it so simply and clearly that you understood it. And that took real genius. When, uh, when people said that, that Isaac doesn't have much of a style, he's not much of a stylist in writing, I took umbrage. It takes a lot of work and a lot of talents to write so clearly and simply. Uh, anybody can confuse the readers. The real trick is to help the readers understand what you're writing about. Absolutely. Like I, you know, what I learned from Isaac is that writing a story shouldn't be a contest between the writer and the reader. The writer shouldn't be there <laughs> trying to show how smart he is. He should be there with his hand in the reader's hand saying, let's go together into this strange land and see what we can make of it. Mm. It's very true. I mean, he's 
He's, he's almost, almost the opposite, opposite of, of um, someone like Lovecraft, where it's very functional writing. And I find that when you get a few people asked to describe a scene in an Asimov book, they have completely different descriptions of the background because he never really gave a background, but you didn't need it to begin with. That's right. Isaac was, despite his loud proclamations that he's a genius, I think he's really a very modest, he's really at heart a very modest man. And he told me once, he said, I don't know why people read my fiction. There's nothing there but two people talking to each other. Yeah, but it's and the, yet those stories took us all across the universe. It's the people that he has talking that's amazing. For example, in the robot, the, se- in the robot series, he, he's these wonderful discussions between Lige Bailey and, and Daniil Oliva. And yep. you, you lose fact, you lose track of the fact that one of them is a robot. And one of Isaac's enduring themes through that whole series of robot stories is, what does it mean to be a human being? In the exploration finally, of what it means to be a robot, he forces you to look at what it means to be a human being. Exactly. Exactly. And can we, as humans, extend human rights and human sensibilities to these machines we've made, these machines that may be smarter and more capable than we are. So tell us a little Hmm. bit about what it was like when you first got contact with Isaac Asimov. What was the context in which you first, your first meetings with him? Well, when I first moved to Boston in the uh, mid-1950s, I knew that Isaac lived in the suburb of Boston, and there he was in the phone book. I called him and I said, you know, I've, I've written a, a little bit of science fiction and I admire your work and if you don't mind, I'd like to meet you. Isaac was more than kind. Uh, we met, we liked each other immediately. He became sort of a big brother to me. And within a couple of months after we first met, Isaac phoned me and said, you know, the editor of Amazing Science Fiction has just asked me, Isaac, to write a series of nonfiction articles about extraterrestrial life. said, I told her I'm much too busy to do that, but my friend Ben Bobo will write the series because he knows more about the subject than I do. Wow. Well, I, I <laughs> dropped the phone. I said, Isaac, how can you say that? He said, it's simple. I'll tell you everything I know. And you, <laughs> must, know, and you must know something that I don't, so that means you, you'll know more than I do. That's amazing. Well, I, did, oh, I did write the series, and that established my name in the science fiction audience. Wow. And that, you know, for that I owe Isaac. And ladies and gentlemen, these stories are exactly why we do this podcast. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely true. Oh, my God. So then he began from that point to kind of be your mentor? Through the guiding yes. into the, the whole science fiction world? Oh, quite quite a bit. We lived close to each other. When uh, he his first marriage broke up, he moved to New York and met uh, the woman who became his second wife. Um, and I moved to New York when my marriage broke up and met the woman who became my second wife, and the four of us became very good friends. The night that Isaac moved out of his bachelor apartment in New York and into a new apartment with his second wife. 
um, Barbara and I took them out to dinner. And as we left the restaurant, we passed Isaac's old apartment building. And he looked up at his window, which was now dark, and he got instantly sentimental. He said, well, I was there 36 months. I wrote 36 books. It wasn't that bad. And I fell down on the floor. Wow. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm glad it wasn't that bad. You know. <laughs> he was a writing machine. Isaac got up in the morning and wrote all day long. That's all he really wanted to do. It was hard to drag him away from his typewriter and take him out to have some fun. You know, usually it's the case of quality versus quantity. <laughs> but uh, he definitely wasn't a Harper Lee in this case. <laughs> Isaac never won awards for the quality of his prose. Although, as I said, writing so simply and clearly takes a lot of talent. Unfortunately, it's very seldom recognized as such. It looks so easy. But I have challenged people to go try and do it. I know I try to do it, and it, it isn't easy. It's very difficult. Well, you mentioned that, and it makes me think about how when Harlan Ellison was on the show, he talked about how so many times regular, if you will, um, literature in general kind of looks down upon science fiction, but I think that Isaac Asimov was one of the few who actually kind of pulled it up and made people pay attention. Yes, but mostly for his nonfiction work. He got more attention for his work on, on books like Shakespeare and the History of England and uh, Asimov's Guide to Science than his science fiction ever did. Well, now, speaking but, of that... One of our listeners wrote in and uh, had, a, had a good question and said, uh, quote, Asimov often spoke highly of the space program and was critical of those who thought it was a waste of resources. Uh, what do you think he would say about the current state of the space program now where privatized spaceflight is increasingly popular, whereas NASA has no real replacement for the space shuttle program? NASA does have a replacement for the space shuttle. It's rockets built by private companies. We know how to build rockets. You don't need to take the most advanced space organization in the world and put them to building new rockets. Private companies can do that, and they'll do it better and more efficiently because they're doing it for a profit. And we will see uh, rocket travel, space travel, drop in price enormously. You know, when the government runs a program, they can do things very well, but price is not an object in a government program. So it costs $10,000 a pound to lift something into space on the space shuttle. When you get that down to $100 a pound, then maybe you and I can take a flight. And that's what private enterprise will do. NASA should not be in the bus uh, transportation business. It's a buy transportation. Is yes. that who's running the MBTA? <laughs> no, no, you wouldn't want to that Unfortunately, over the years, NASA has become a job program for engineers. And that doesn't help you to explore the universe. No. You know, what, what a lot of people don't know about Asimov is that he had a very, very sly sense of humor. Oh, did he? 
<laughs> and, I'm, and I'm sure you can tell us about it. My personal favorite is a book of him. His called The Sensuous Dirty Old Man, which I just, yeah. when I found out it was him that had read it, I was in hysterics. Yes, he loved humor. He loved jokes. And he could keep going all night long telling jokes. Um, he, wrote, he put out two books of lecherous limericks. <laughs> I mean, really, really bad stuff. But, but he loved them, and he composed what he called the classic, which I propose now to repeat for you. Please. Please. Isaac's Isaac classic limerick. A harlot from North Carolina tied fiddle strings crossed her vagina. With proper sized cocks, with the sex became boxed to cotta and fugue in G minor. <laughs> we now I have a new opening. Oh. <laughs> I knew it was going to get funnier. That, <laughs> that is a, an example of Isaac's sense of humor. And this is the best thing about being not on Clear Channel anymore, is that you can say that and nobody cares. <laughs> you can say that. There weren't any of the seven dirty words in that limerick. You're absolutely correct. There are. George, George Carlin could have said it with a clear conscience. <laughs> but if you want to say one of the seven words, just go for you, it. You can go for it. We'll probably beat you to it. Well, Isaac had another limerick, or actually a story about a limerick where a guy comes home from a night out at the bar with his buddies, and as he's getting into bed, he's chuckling to himself, giggle, giggle. And his wife says, what's so funny? And the guy says, oh, Harry told a, a joke, a limerick, that is so filthy that uh, it, it just breaks me up. And she says, what is it? He says, I can't tell you. He says, why can't you tell me? He says, it's too dirty. And she says, for God's sake, we've been married for 15 years. You can tell me anything. And he says, no, I'd be embarrassed. And the wife says, oh, all right, just tell me the limerick. When they come to a dirty word, say hum. And the husband says, all right, here's the limerick. Hum, 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 hum. Hum, 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 hum. Hum, 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 <laughs> well, it's nice to know that the icons that we hold up as deities did indeed have feet of clay. <laughs> I would like to point out that our chat room has gone completely silent. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely struck dumb. <laughs> Isaac was a very human being. And, uh, you know, the stories he wrote praised human rationality, but he did have a sense of humor, and he was a complete person, a very male person. Nothing wrong with that. No. Hey. Not at all. Were there ever any times where he frustrated you, though? Were there any times which? Yes, when he frustrated I didn't hear the question, I'm sorry. Oh, were there, any, were there ever any times when he frustrated you, though? Frustrated me? No, we, we didn't like each other that much. <laughs> X, what are you implying? But, no, no, no. Isaac and I were good good friends. He was actually like a big brother to me. He helped me a lot. Oh, and, uh, not a big sister. We, we, yeah. We got our own fun. 
I so, did. I did once. I couldn't help myself. I said, comes glowing about this book review he just received in a prestigious magazine, and it's writing about his effortless style. And I said, Isaac, I read that review and said, your stylist effort. That's the only time I ever stopped him. <laughs> Asimov had a, a flair for uh, making, in the course of a novel, one or two incredibly complete characters. And they would carry mm -hmm. those characters on from one book to the next. Yes. One of my one of my favorites uh, from way back was Dr. Susan Calvin. Me too. Yes. That's can and we she talk changed and grew. She changed and grew over the years. She absolutely did because she started off as quite the stick in the mud, didn't she? Mm hmm And and over the course of of significant short stories and, and books and uh, oh even when she wasn't a, a tangential character in a book, people would constantly reference her. It was, yes. it was, you know, as if Dr. Calvin was a real person. Yeah, when a character is that good, and you've had the opportunity to write about her over so many years and to fill in all the depths and, and the, the subtleties of the character, uh, it becomes very real. But, uh, for me, the best story, I should say my favorite story of all that Isaac Asimov wrote, was The Ugly Little Boy. Oh my. You talk about sensitivity. I mean, about this, this Neanderthal baby snatched out of time by scientists in our era, and the woman who's given charge of taking care of the baby voluntarily goes back into the Stone Age with him to take care of him. That is a really heart-wrenching story. And there, there are a number of short stories like that that, that he wrote. Um, there's, there was one in particular that I wish I could remember the title of, and it's got two roboticists on the planet Mercury. Uh, oh, run around. Run around, thank you. And yeah. they're trying to figure out why this poor robot that's on the surface will not obey commands. Yes. It's running and, around in, in like giant circles, right? Yes, 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 yes. Yes. It, now, Isaac, with the help of John Campbell, invented the three laws of robotics. Isaac always gave John the credit, but when I talked to Campbell about it, Campbell said, oh, the, the laws were implicit in, in Isaac's first stories about robots. He just didn't write them down implicitly. Um, explicitly, I should say. So, you know, the three laws are uh, a robot must obey, must never harm a human being. The second law is a robot must obey all orders given to it, except if that conflicts with the first law. And the third law is a robot must protect itself at all times, except when this conflicts with the first and second laws. And Isaac spent 20 years playing those laws off against each other. And once I met him, and became friends with him. I understood what was going on. Isaac was raising two children. And the laws of robotics are very close to what you're trying to train your children to do. And Isaac was being a father to his robots. 
And the interesting thing nice. was that he was complicit in virtually every robotic story that he wrote in maintaining those three laws, in the use of those three laws, and the implications derived from the use of those three laws. Yes. Yes. And, and that's truly no mean feat. That, that's, in fact, very difficult to, to create you know the the foundations of a universe, uh, the foundations of a, of of a, a society or a substrate of society, and then keep it within those confines and allow it to grow within those confines, and find all the conflict conflicts within those three laws mm -hmm. and build stories about them. Yeah, we um. Actually, one, another uh, listener wrote in and said, uh, Dr. Bova, in your stories, you often adhere to the three laws of robotics, but are quite willing to flex or even break them in your work. Do you regard the three laws as a good tool for storytelling, or is it just a given that sci-fi authors need to adhere to them? No, I don't think authors need to adhere to those laws. It's quite possible to envision robots or other forms of machinery that aren't constricted by those laws at all. Um, today, we, we have drones dropping bombs on suspected terrorists. Okay, uh, thank they, you. <laughs> they're not bothered about the three laws of robotics whatsoever. Yeah. And that brings up the, other, the next uh, email was, uh, how has the scientific community been influenced by the three laws? Apparently not at all. <laughs> Uh, not much. Or maybe I should say not yet. We haven't become sophisticated enough with our robots to begin to worry about the three laws. We don't really worry about our machines attacking us. Um, so we haven't bothered to build a first law into them. But the time will come when they're sophisticated enough and flexible enough that we'll have to start thinking in those terms. Well, what makes, I think what, what makes it uh, important is that the three laws specifically pertain to sentience, or at least the appearance of such. In other words, I, I, in my mind, Asimov, Asimov's purpose of the three laws was if you're going to have a robot think, then a robot needs the constraints that a human has by the nature of society. Exactly. Exactly. Those three laws pertain to us also. You know, we are bound, or at least we should be bound, to obey the strictures of, of our society, the society we live in. We should be willing to live without harming other people. We should be willing to protect ourselves. And sometimes these goals come in conflict with each other. You know, we, uh, this is largely a Christian nation. And Christianity is based on, on the teachings of Christ, who said, for God's sake, don't kill each other. Don't even get angry with each other. And yet we go out and fight wars. And the point of wars is to, to kill as many of the other guys as you can. And we try to fold that into our ethical structure and say, well, you mustn't kill each other unless it's in a good cause. Um, the Buddhists know better. 
don't kill each other, period. And there is a full, yeah. Now, interestingly, if you look at Asimov, Clark, and Heinlein, each of the three of them chose to create a social structure in which to envision what it is they wish to present their vision of the future. In, to my yeah. way of thinking, Asimov's was probably the most structured because he worked so hard on structure. Well, he also used the same uh, society throughout the body of his work. Uh, Heinlein wrote about different kinds of societies. Uh, Clark did, too. But uh, Isaac kept to that one model that he had and, and wrote about it continuously and kept improving it and deepening it and sharpening it. Hmm. Hmm. Let me ask you, for, um, lis- uh, for our listeners who have never been exposed to Isaac's work before, what would you recommend as the... Hello? Do we lose everyone? Dr. Bova? Dial. Can I take your call now? Oh. At the tone, please record. Okay then. Illustrator X. We're here. Yep. Yeah. For some reason, Skype killed us off. I'm not sure what happened. I think that our internet connection perhaps hiccuped because it seems like you stream was also disrupted. Um, I guess that's you again. Hi. Sorry about that. It seems like technology is being a little flaky on us tonight. Of course. We don't, we don't have good enough robots yet. It's, it's those, those rabid anti-Asimov fans. Gremlins. <laughs> Luddites. 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 Don't Look, right, X, he's people. talking about you. <laughs> hey, 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 now. I have an Atari 2600. That's a technology. It was in 1985. It's, no problem. Look, all you Twilight fans out there, there are other books. We're talking about other authors. Leave us alone for the you, next You just have to make yourself feel better for being a Luddite by bashing Twilight fans, which I'm usually all for, but that was weak. <laughs> <laughs> that was weak. <laughs> the poor children. You can't go after them that harshly, Brian. Sure we can. Hey, yeah. there's no three laws of Twilight fans. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but there maybe should be. Oh. I'm checking you stream to make sure we're good on that uh. stuff. So well, anyway, yeah. anyway, so the question I had asked before we were rudely interrupted, um, for uh, those new readers, that new generation who have never been exposed to Isaac's work, what are, what are the books that you feel were the good intro books? Well, I've, I've always liked The Cage of the Seal. Yeah, uh, those are my favorite. And I think, I think his collection of stories about robots, I, Robot. Uh, is marvelous, and, and you'll get the full flavor of Isaac's thinking and the delightful uh, twists and turns in those stories. 
as he manipulates the three laws of robotics to create conflicts among the robots and the humans. I, I need to interject here to say, read the actual book. Do not watch the movie. <laughs> yeah. Which brings me to my next question. Uh, possibly, you've just listed probably one of his seminal books, iRobot. And yet, it was probably one of the worst science fiction movies ever made. Oh, no, there has been much worse. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen X-Men First Class yet? Oh, oh. Hey, no. hey, hey. <laughs> Are they no. to defend X-Men First there's a, Class? There's a basic problem. It is... You know, when you expect a book to be made faithfully into a movie, uh, you're expecting too much. It's a different medium, and especially in the field of science fiction, the movies appeal to a much different audience. Science fiction appeals to a fairly narrow audience of people who enjoy thinking. The movies <laughs> are, are aimed at a very broad audience, and, and uh, audience of people who want to be entertained. They don't necessarily want to think deep thoughts or any thoughts at all. They just want these wonderful flickering images to entertain them for a couple of hours. So it's very, very difficult to translate a science fiction story onto the screen. Have you, ever, done. have you ever found one that, that you were happy with? Uh, to me, the best science fiction film ever made uh, was started as a film project. It never was a story, uh, a print story. It was uh, intended not as science fiction when it was made, but intended as a comedy. It was made by the Ealing Studios in Britain in 1950. It starred Alec Guinness, and it's called The Man in the White Suit. Oh, man. It is better science fiction than 99% of the other science fiction movies ever made. It's about a scientist who comes up with an invention that can change the world, and how the world combines to destroy the scientist and his invention. It has a lot to say about society, about science and, and scientist research, and it's very, very funny in the bargain. Yes. You, you sure you're not talking about the mouse that roared? <laughs> no. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's not. <laughs> no, this is the man in the white suit. It has a classic line in it, a line that I have heard in many research labs. When Alec Guinness gets to do his experiment and it blows up, he lifts his head out of the rubble and says, you shouldn't have done that. I have worked in research labs where they've blown the roof off the building, and that's the first line. You shouldn't have done that. <laughs> I totally and wholeheartedly agree. Yeah, well, that's what experimental science is all about. You set things up the best you can and hope it works. No, it's not always fun. Sometimes it's mind-numbingly boring. But on the days where it's fun, it's worth all the boring days. Yeah, the hard work is you Writing is boring. I mean, you sit writing a novel, you're sitting at the keyboard day after day, pounding on those keys, and... Uh, it, it, it's not exciting. It's not like taking a trip to Mars. It's sitting there and hoping your backside holds up. And, and yet, with the proliferation of everything that Asimov wrote, I find it hard to believe that he was bored, that he grew tired, that he was ever tired of sitting in front of his typewriter. And, and I think you're. I think you're entirely right. Isaac enjoyed the physical ordeal of writing. 
that the perfect day for Isaac was to get up in the morning, have a bit of breakfast, and go in and write, and not come out until it was time for dinner. And the first wife got very, very upset with that. She wanted him to do other things, to be more of, a, of an ordinary human being. But Isaac knew very well there are lots of ordinary human beings. There's only one Isaac Asimov, and he did what he did best. And, and we're all better off for it. Absolutely. But the beauty of it is, the absolute beauty of it is, that there's damn little of his that you look at and go, well, that was really just mailing it in. Or, you know, no. that really isn't his best stuff. I was no. I was going through some of his, uh, his juvenile stuff. Uh, the Norby oh, Chronicles. Lucky Star, yes. And the Lucky Star series. Mm -hmm. I mean, it started off with, before Lucky, he was David Starr, Space Ranger. And yeah. then you have five or six other uh, books between 52 and 58 that were just, you know, at the time, there, there was a subgenre of science fiction called The Juveniles. And yes. they, were, they were frowned upon on a good day. Oh, it made money. It, it totally made money. And in retrospect... This was some really, really quality, cool writing. And it built an audience of people who got excited by what they read and kept on reading science fiction into adulthood. Some of those people had walked on the moon. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. I kid you not. Every man who walked on the moon read science fiction as a kid. I know because I know them. So it's your contention then that there is a a correlation between the the wonder of a child sitting there write, reading this book under the covers with a flashlight and exploration and moving forward, exploring other worlds and other galaxies and the rest of I it. Think there, I think there is. I'm not saying that every reader who reads these books is going to go on to conquer the universe, but the people who actually do go out into space, most of them read science fiction as they, when they were youngsters. And, and that's what turned them on. And I think that ties back to the note I read at the beginning of the show where he's saying, you know, the library is going to take you places. It's not just because you're going to read a book about Africa and feel like you've been there. It's because maybe you'll be inspired to go. Or maybe you'll be inspired to go to the moon. And I think that that's part of what Isaac Asimov did is he inspires people to, um, his books inspire people to... Um, yeah, you know, the high point of my career is once in a while I'll get a letter or an email from someone who says, I'm, I'm a research scientist and I did this because I read your books as a kid. And that, that just thrills me to pieces. It's yeah. my, my, my little payback for all the things that science fiction has done for me. It's funny because when Kriana was a young girl, <laughs> she used to crawl through my science fiction collection. Some of it's actually in my apartment right now. A lot of it is still <laughs> in your apartment. Like the lie and, yeah, research scientists. Yeah. I, it's only been 20 years. You'll be giving it back, right? <laughs> I, I've already you really don't, bought You don't give it back. My good friend Gordon Dixon originated the phrase, you pay it forward. That's right. You, nice. Don't you, give it back. You can give it to someone else who you can. Don't, 
That's right. right. You, you give it to, it to the, the next generation. generation. You, you help them and expect them to do the same. One of the things I'd like our listeners to do over the course of uh, their listening to this is for them to give Dr. Asimov's book a chance. Give Dr. Bova's book a chance. Learn something new. Go in there and definitely try something different. And you will have fun doing it. Because these are exciting stories about interesting people doing marvelous things. But also, don't just read something. Like, don't just read it and consume it like you would consume a TV show or a movie and then you're done with it and then that's it. Like, think about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. You know, you know it's, it's funny. funny. Uh, while, while I was... Um, Collecting questions for this week's show, uh, it turns out a friend of mine I've known for years says, Oh, Isaac Asimov? Yeah, I knew him. My science teacher back in New York State was Hal Clement, and Isaac used to show him a couple of times. Yeah, I almost fell over. She said, uh, I, She told me how, uh, what his real name is. But he says, Hal Trump. Yes. And Hal taught at Milton Academy in Massachusetts. Yeah. So chemistry and astronomy. Yeah, and she said Isaac would have stopped in a few times. Yeah, and I was like, oh my god, my science class, we got to cut up a frog. Coolest uh, <laughs> class ever. <laughs> when Isaac, when Isaac first started to become a successful science fiction writer, he was uh, an assistant professor at Boston University. And the chancellor called him in and said, see here, Asimov, you've got to decide whether you're going to be a researcher and a university professor or write this science fiction. And Isaac told me, said, instantly, my mind told me, I can be another ordinary researcher among millions of others where I can be the best science fiction writer in the world. So his choice was clear. And he was about to resign his position at the university when cooler heads prevailed. They begged him to keep his position. All they had to do was come to the school and lecture once a year. And his lectures were always sold out. Yeah. (laughs) He had to show up once a year. (laughs) Sometimes that's the bad bit about being young is you miss some cool stuff. Well, there's cool stuff going on around you. You just have to recognize it. It's only later that it becomes a legend. And then you can be all like, I was there. Yep. (laughs) Even if it's not true. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Um, Now, speaking of other tie-ins, like with Hal Clement, uh, one of the readers wrote in and said, um, Asimov and uh, J.R.R. Tolkien were apparently fans of each other's work. Um, Do you know whether or not they had any influence on each other's writings? No, that's the first time I have heard that Isaac read Tolkien. Uh, It may be perfectly true, I just don't know. We never discussed it between us. I can't see Susan Calvin in the Shire myself. (laughs) But you have to recognize that Isaac had a very broad mind and an interest in all sorts of things. So I wouldn't be surprised if he did read Tolkien uh, and lots of other things as well. 
Were you familiar with uh, what his interests were outside of sitting in front of his uh, Underwood typewriter just pounding away? As far as I could find out, he didn't have any other interests. Writing the stories he wrote led him into all sorts of fields. You know, there was a time when Isaac was the library for all of us science fiction writers. We hit a, a snag, you know, a problem, a question. We call Isaac. And if he didn't know the answer, he would find it for us. Can you give an example? Um, yeah, <laughs> this is funny. I was working at a research laboratory, and I shared an office with a very sharp physicist. And I was writing on my own time a science fiction story set around the planet Jupiter. And I turned to my office companion, and I said, Dick, what, the, what gives the clouds of Jupiter the colors that they have? And Dick thought a moment, he says, I don't know, but let's ask Harry. He's a plasma physicist. He'll know. Harry didn't know. And it was like a Laurel and Hardy movie. <laughs> all work in the laboratory stopped while the, the entire scientific staff started checking on what the hell causes those colors in the planet Jupiter. None of them knew or could figure it out. Finally, I called Isaac, and he gave me as good an answer as I had received yet. So whenever anybody had one of those puzzles... No, no, wait, what was the answer? Yeah, what was the answer? <laughs> yep. Oh, what was the answer? Yes. Uh, the colors in Jupiter, they're caused by organic chemicals in those clouds. Very interesting. The clouds of Jupiter form organic particles, like matter, which, which fall out of the clouds and down into the ocean below. So, so you're saying he was the human Wikipedia... <laughs> Except that he was accurate. <laughs> Good call. Nice. Yeah, on top of his writing classic science fiction, uh, writing uh, juvenile science fiction, writing uh, hard science, he also wrote mysteries. Did you and histories. Yeah, well, I know that. But I'm and and uh, annotated uh, uh, examinations of great pieces of literature. Yes. Now, he was one of the... But you were, you were asking about the mysteries. Yes, he belonged to the Trapdoor Spiders Club, which was a little organization of writers who enjoyed mysteries. Now, was he one of the Baker Street Regulars as well? I don't believe so, no. So what would happen is there was a group of people, a group of writers, who knew him for his mystery writing. There was a larger group of writers who knew him for his hard science writing. There was another group of writers who knew him for his annotated works of, of uh, history. And there was a larger group of writers who knew him as a science fiction author. Yep. And they really didn't intersect much, did they? Oh, no, there was quite a bit of overlap. Really? Yes. Yes, indeed. I think hard science and science fiction would overlap quite a bit. Certainly. And so would uh, the poetry and the histories. You know, um, many, many science fiction writers are deeply interested in history. It's hard to predict where you're going if you don't know where we came from. 
Good point. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I really enjoy about Asimov's writing, since he was so grounded in hard science, I mean, you watch some movies these days, and being a biologist, I'm like, diseases don't progress like that. That's completely ridiculous. And then they'll come mm -hmm. out with this jargon, and I'll actually know what the word means, and it means absolutely zero <laughs> in that context, and I'll be like, what are you saying? And it's just completely lost on me. But Asimov's work was entirely the opposite of that. <laughs> yes. Isaac had great faith in the strength of human thought and human rationality. He thought we could solve our problems if we would only face them. And like many other writers, he recognized that there's a big lag between the, what the scientists can accomplish and what the politicians can uh, accept. <laughs> a big lag is a bit of an understatement. <laughs> a gaping chasm may be more accurate. <laughs> It'll take time for them to catch up. They're not trained in science. And they have this love-hate relationship. They love it when scientists can do something to make their positions better. But they always fear the superior knowledge and uh, capabilities of science. It's, it's like the old fairy tales, you know, about the magician who can make all your dreams come true, but there's always a price to pay. And it's very easy to villainize scientists because Asimov was such an exception in his communication where he could make any sort of scientific concept very clear. Most scientists cannot, for the life of them, do that. And if they try to talk to people who don't know their field about what they do, you know, they'll just be like... I, I have worked with many scientists and, and done uh, books about science with, with Nobel Prize winners. And I have found this, this is what happens. As you get close to publication... They get terrified that their colleagues are going to read this popularization and downgrade them for it because they're writing for a popular audience rather than for other scientists. So they come to question, the scientist begins to question whether he really wants to write for the general audience. Will this hurt his uh, standing among the subtle scientists? I don't think that fear is completely unfounded, actually. Probably not. But uh, I think it's incredibly important for people who know science, who are doing the research, to tell people, the general public, as clearly as they can, what they're doing and what the implications might be. And I think at this point in our, let's say, so scientific journalists are kind of trying to bridge the gap between, you know, talking to actual scientists and translating their work when they're not able to into something for popular consumption that people won't understand. And I think right now they're doing an absolutely terrible job of it in most cases. Well, when I ran Omni Magazine, that's what we were trying to do, to get the world's leading scientists, and if necessary, pair them with a good science journalist to explain what they're doing, what the possibilities are, what the, the capabilities are. And Omni was very successful at that and became a very popular magazine. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Dr. Bo, you ran Omni Magazine for a while? For the first four years, yes. Thank you for putting out one hell of a magazine. <laughs> well, you really should thank Bob Guccione 
and the woman he married, Captain Keaton, both of whom, unfortunately, are dead now. But uh, they very seriously wanted to bring out a top-flight magazine about, not science necessarily, but about the future. And when you're writing about the future, necessarily you're writing about science. And it was fun. It was a great magazine. Oh yes, it was. God, it was a great magazine. We still have a stack downstairs from when my mother moved. Somehow I had saved them from when I was a kid. We brought them up here just to go through them again. And it's just... Uh, it's like finding you, a hidden I treasure. i got to tell you a little story about Ami. When I was the editor-in-chief, uh, the World Science Fiction Convention was in Denver one of those years, and I went to the World Science Fiction Convention, and I'm at the Omni booth in the uh, dealer's room, and a kid about 10, 12 years old comes up, holding in his fist a copy of the first edition of Omni, and he's very excited. He says, I just bought this from the dealer down the road there for $15. And I told him, he said, you've got a bargain, kid. Uh, Guccione published a million copies and sold them all. We couldn't even get extra copies in the office. And the kid says, would you, would you sign it for me, please? I said, of course. So I signed it for him. A little SOB came back five minutes later and said, I sold it back to the same dealer for $30. <laughs> so I have at least one datum point that my signature is worth 15 bucks. <laughs> I, I hasten to say that your signature is probably worth a tad bit more than that. Well, I've never charged for it, so I don't know. <laughs> well, Dr. Bova, last time you were on the show, you said something that stuck with me ever since that interview. We were talking about your feeling about science fiction, and you said to me that science fiction is simply history that hasn't happened yet. Yeah, yeah. How does that pertain in your mind to the works of Isaac Asimov? Uh, some of the history has, has actually happened. It's been long enough so that we do have machines that think, not quite as flexibly as Isaac's robots, but uh, we're getting there. We do have a, a global society that is really run by technology. When you take a look at the uprisings in the Arab Spring, what is behind it all? Cell phones. The, the ability of oppressed peoples to communicate with each other, to form giant rallies. Uh, this is the fundamental enemy of tyranny. The first thing a tyrant does is try to control all the means of communications. You can't do it anymore. They're finding that out the hard way in uh, Libya right now. Mm. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And, and yet, yet IBM is now working with uh, their new uh, super robot Watson, and that yes. guy scares the hell out of me. <laughs> oh, my God. Don't be scared. Watson is being put to use uh, in medical uh, library searches. You know, in, but in creating diagnoses. To go, to and go I back think to that's start, a very good use for it. Um, where I was talking about science journalism, is I think that the way that science journalism is working right now, there's a lot of manufactured controversies on the one hand, and on the other hand, a lot of sort of false promises where you have sort of basic research and the journalist is coming out and saying, this is going to be a cure for cancer. And that's where you sort of get this fear from because 
there's such a big leap from what's reported and what's actually true that, you know, you have people saying, well, they reported that there was a cure for cancer at this time and this time and this time. They've got to be holding something back. There's, no, there's a way to deal with that. You read those stories from the bottom up, <laughs> not from the top. From the bottom is where they put all the disclaimers. You know, where they say, well, this hasn't really been done in clinical practice, but they're looking forward to the tests that will lead to that. But some of the journalists are not even not honest enough to even say something like that. So my, my rule for our particular publication is that if the headline can be summed up as, no, don't publish it. <laughs> <laughs> during, during the American Civil War, when reports from the battlefield were very, very shaky and you couldn't really trust them, uh, many newspapers around the country adapted a standard headline which read, good news is true. <laughs> and, and I think you, you have to read a lot of these science reports with that in mind. Good news is true. It'll take time to find out if it's true or not. Most scientific research winds up in, in some dusty library shelf. It never goes anywhere. Only about 2% really makes a change in the world. But that 2% is all the change in the world. So, and and on the concept a lot, of, a lot of the work, a lot of the work goes nowhere. But it's it's necessary to do it because you don't know where the good two percent lies. And Dr. Bova, if I could just say right now, good news if it's true. Here's the good news: it has been an absolute pleasure listening to you tonight, just talking with you, getting to speak to one of my heroes about one of my heroes. You guys are awfully good for my ego. <laughs> wait, 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 we'd, we'd like, like to be, be good, good for your pocketbook. Um, tell us about your latest book, Leviathans of Jupiter. Leviathans of Jupiter is part of the Grand Tour series of novels. It deals with uh, research scientists in a station in orbit around Jupiter. Beneath Jupiter's clouds, there is a planet-wide ocean, an ocean ten times bigger than Earth. And in that ocean... In my earlier novel, Jupiter, I posited the existence of giant whale-like creatures, the Leviathans, big as mountains. And in Leviathans of Jupiter, we have a group of scientists trying to decide, are these creatures intelligent? And if they are, can we make contact with them? Can we say things meaningfully back and forth to one another? And that, I think, is a great, great question if and when we find a species that we believe is could be intelligent, how will we determine? How will we know if it's intelligent? How will we be able to contact it and, and make meaningful discourse with it? It's one of the biggest problems of our future, and it's a problem we may face sooner than we think. And what we'd like to do is possibly put a link up on our website to Amazon.com where our listeners can go and pick up Leviathans of Jupiter and so if you other work, we will absolutely do that for you, sir. It I'm doing it right now. We're actually doing it as we speak because uh, it's important that people technology know. Technology is wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> you bet it is. Are we ready to run the board here? Uh, are you asking me for the end music right now? You know what? It's time. I, I, I could sit here for the next three hours. But unfortunately, it's time to run the table. 
Uh, well, Mr. thank Harry, you so much for asking me on the show. I've enjoyed it very much. Can Please we, come back. Please come back. Thank you. Anytime you ask. Oh, you may not want to say that. <laughs> <laughs> you, you may find yourself engaged many nights on. Well, oh, by the way, I wanted to mention that our people in the uh, chat room yes. have been listening to us, and their comment was, uh, thanks, Dr. Bova. Thank you, Sci-Fi Saturday Night crew. This was a great program. We really appreciate what you did. Well, thank you all so much. Have a good night. Thank you, Dr. Bova. And sounds like it's that time. Next week, author L. Neal Smith gives us a sneak peek at his upcoming novel, Sweeter Than Wine. Then on June 18th, fresh from a stopover at Callahan's Cross Time Saloon, it's author Spider Robinson. Oh, for God's sake, give Spider my best regards. (laughs) Oh, we will. We've had him on before. We love having him. Absolutely. On June 25th, Anthony Del Call and Connor McCreary get Hey Nani Nani with their hit comic book series, Kill Shakespeare. On June, on, sorry, July 16th, the extraordinary Matt Durson and the League of Ordinary Gentlemen podcast. On July 30th, we get super knocked up with filmmaker Jeff Burns and crew. And... <laughs> Hey, oh, he God likes comments too, so it stays. And on August 6th, Everett Soares takes us on a grand adventure with the Sky Pirates of Valandor. Sci-Fi Saturday Night is the official podcast of the Boston Comic Con and of Comic Art House, your one and only source for original comic artwork. Visit Bob and Kim at ComicArtHouse.com for the best deals on original art from dozens of your favorite artists. Tonight's outro music provided by Zanoise. Pick up their CD, The Benevolent Beast, on iTunes. Dome? I want to thank Dr. Ben Bova for joining us tonight. It's a joy to listen to you, to talk to you. Please come back anytime. Thank you so much. Good night. And Dead Redhead, thank you guys so much for joining us tonight. Our pleasure. Definitely a pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Bova. Thank you. And from Area 51, thank you, Kriana, and thank you so much, Zombrary. Thanks. I'm, re- I'm re-inspired. I'm all science <laughs> <laughs> All science Yeah. This is Dome saying, you know what? We'll see you next week, guys. This is why we do what we do. Good night, everyone. Actually, through the miracle of science, that can be arranged.